The following episode is for informational purposes only. For medical and other healthcare-related advice customized to you or your loved one, please provide a licensed healthcare professional with the specific circumstances that you believe to be the root cause to your or your loved one's ailment or medical concern. The content of this podcast should not serve as a replacement for customized healthcare administered under the supervision of a healthcare provider. Welcome to episode one of season two of the Not Your Mama's Autism podcast. I'm Lola Dada Ali. Our season one finale hopefully provided some rich context that allowed us to give you a glimpse into the multiple considerations and challenges our family navigated as the world continues to grapple with this global pandemic. This included a trip to the emergency room that resulted in our daughter's hospital stay. The medical team discovered significant GI issues evidenced by a troubling stomach x-ray that is the reason behind this particular episode with a rich conversation with the registered dietitian who specializes in addressing the needs of neurodiverse individuals through diet. There is an old adage in autism circles that goes something to the effect of when you've met one person on the autism spectrum, you've met one person on the spectrum. My family is a great example of this. Although my brother, son, and daughter all have autism, their particular challenges and needs can vary widely based on the situation at hand. The person with the most significant GI-related issues is my daughter, Alero, by far. Her GI issues can manifest in behaviors that can be interpreted sometimes as aggressive, and seemingly out of nowhere. But we would later learn that such behaviors may be presenting as significant pain responses. Because baby girl is also largely nonverbal, my husband Tosa and I sometimes have to act as detectives in order to make sure that she is getting what she needs. And sometimes that requires a level of trial and error that results in her frustration, and occasionally ours as well. To get some context into the challenges surrounding this aspect of her autism-related challenges, we take you back to the early days. We were first made aware that baby girl could have some significant gut issues around four years of age or so. There's nothing quite like communicating with the four-year-old, let alone one with communication challenges. Baby girl proved to be no exception. At age four, her ABA therapist suggested that we start her potty training. She felt that she was ready, and we thought she might be also. Her older brother wasn't fully potty trained until he was about five, so we thought the baby girl would start her journey about the same time. There was some real pushback when it came to potty training. We bought the potty seats, the standalone kind, the kind that also act like a booster seat when you put it on the commode. We played music, attempted to bribe her with snacks after a successful attempt, but nothing consistently worked. Instead, she would insist on going to a private place in the house to do the deed and let the sweet aroma pierce our noses as a sign that it was time for a cleanup on aisle four. What we didn't realize was that with each potty training attempt, she appeared to be holding in her bowels. 
She was now constipated and wouldn't go as much as she did before the potty training started. She was exhibiting certain behaviors when she was in ABA therapy and at home over the next several days that made us wonder if she was experiencing some type of pain that she couldn't communicate to us. We took her to a gastroenterologist and conducted a stomach x-ray. We soon discovered that there was so much stool in her little body, it was touching her diaphragm. I was floored. We decided to stop potty training for the moment, and we made sure we got even more aggressive with her feeding therapy. She started eating more sizable amounts of fruits and vegetables than she was regular. Constipation was gone. Alero behaviorally returned to her old self. For years, we were under the erroneous assumption that her gut-related issues were at bay. That is, until one night last year, when she bursted through our room in such pain that she started exhibiting behaviors we had simply never seen in her before. For those listeners who have listened to all of season one, you are aware that this episode landed her in the ER. She already has numerous allergies, so the additional GI issues in a little girl's body who can't tell us when she is in pain has been a true journey for our family that has led us to take on a multidisciplinary approach. In addition to the healthcare providers we discussed in previous episodes that she has, we are addressing her diet beyond the feeding therapy Alero has had in the past. We knew of something called the gut-brain connection. And it was clear that baby girl may be our family's living example of how these two can be connected. According to the Cleveland Clinic, the gut-brain connection refers to the link between the body's central nervous system and the second brain discovered by medical experts that exist in the gut. As explained further by the Cleveland Clinic, through the network of nerves and neurotransmitters that extend from the brain to major organs in the body, there's a lesser known part of the body's nervous system known as the enteric nervous system with its own set of nerves and neurons and neurotransmitters that extend along the entire digestive tract. Some medical experts refer to this second nervous system as the second brain. Now, doctors and researchers are still trying to fully understand this connection that links these two areas of the body. According to the Cleveland Clinic, medical researchers are beginning to look at gut health of people with depression, anxiety, autism, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's disease, just to name a few, in order to better treat individuals holistically. Although gaining traction in recent years, this area of research is still considered on the newer side. That's why I'm excited to present to you a recent conversation I had with Britton Coleman also known as the Autism Dietitian. Britton is a board-certified registered dietitian with a bachelor's and master's degree in nutritional sciences from the University of Oklahoma. She's been practicing for over five years and is passionate about this space. We have a connection as well. We are both proud sisters to brothers on the autism spectrum. Her brother is part of the inspiration behind why she developed this still rare specialization. Approaching our children's autism treatment through this approach is key to their development. Ensuring that Alero has the right fuel going into her body 
to make sure she is one step closer towards greater gut health and therefore greater mental clarity overall is key to making sure she can become the best version of herself. For parents already on this journey who are listening, you may be able to relate to this conversation because you've likely had some version of this talk with one of your healthcare providers. For people who aren't in this situation, I hope this information gives you a better idea of the kinds of considerations families make in order to ensure they get the results they need. My name is Britton Coleman, and I'm a registered dietitian specializing in kids with autism. I work with parents to optimize their kids' diet, supplements, lifestyle, you name it, to help their kids feel their best and ultimately do and be their best. So I really work on individualizing all of these needs to help the child feel their best based on what is appropriate for them, because everybody on the spectrum is so different that there's no one size fits all approach. Amen to that. I literally have have two babies on the spectrum. I have a brother on the spectrum and I can attest through personal, personal testimony that not everyone is alike, just like people who are quote off the spectrum. Not everyone is alike. So I am very curious as to, cause they're, Coming up with my brother, there wasn't a lot. There was a, there weren't a lot of Britons. In fact, I we couldn't find any Britons. So what <laughs> what first sparked your interest in so this I, field? I too have a brother on the spectrum, so it's something that's very dear to my heart. So my, when my my brother was little, my mom actually took a very functional approach to help him feel his best. So she use diet and supplements. I mean, this was back in the nineties. So definitely something that wasn't really talked about then either. I mean, I would feel like a lot of the research on nutrition and autism really spiked after 2000 and especially after 2010. So there's a lot that we're now learning that definitely wasn't available back then. So I was able to see growing up how that really helped him and helped him feel his best and do his best. And so um, growing up around that, whenever I decided I wanted to become a dietitian, I knew that this was really the area that I wanted to specialize in because not there's not very many people who are doing it, like you said. I mean, even now, there's not a ton of people that specialize in autism. And I think that that's because it's really not talked about in, in school. When I was in even my master's degree, they never once mentioned autism or nutrition for kids with autism, which is such a shame. It's such a, a missed opportunity. And so for me, having that personal experience with my brother, it just made so much sense that there was a huge gap in um, I wanted to fill that in my practice. And that is a beautiful segue into my next question. So when you were studying in your master's program, it seems like your master's thesis focused on nutrient intake of kids with autism. What did you uncover? What did you learn? Yeah, my master's thesis was titled Food Aversions and Nutrient Intake and in Autism Spectrum Disorders. So what we were looking at is kids who had food aversions, which is many kids with autism. So if you're not familiar what food aversions is, essentially being a a lot of times we'll think of it as picky eating or selective eating, but it really means that they just can't tolerate a certain food due to its texture, smell, look, taste, you name it. And so we were looking at kids who were selective eaters and uh, surveying parents to see, okay, is your child selective because of the way it looks, the way the texture. And uh, then we were doing food journals and analyzing what the children were eating. And then we compared the two. So what we found is that kids 
I mean, texture was, was a part of it. We didn't find that it was significant, which was interesting to me. I definitely thought texture was going to be the biggest thing, but there are other research studies that say texture is the biggest thing, but we actually found that the way that the food looked, the food appearance had the most significant impact on nutrient intake, especially vitamin A is what we found, which is interesting because vitamin A, typically foods that have vitamin A in them are very bright orange or bright yellow. And so it might have the biggest impact on the way that it looks. So uh, we found that interesting. I um, was, when I was actually looking through it, I, um, I never published it and I really regret not doing that. It may be one of the things I do in 2021, if it's not too late to publish the study, but it was a really interesting study. I love doing it and, you know, really confirmed a lot of what we think about kids who have autism and picky eating, they, we also saw that kids ages four to eight were more likely to have nutrient insufficiency. They weren't getting the need, the nutrients that they needed. And then males age six to 11 weren't getting, they might be at higher risk for nutrient insufficiency as well. So of those, we found vitamin D, calcium, and dietary fiber were the most, the the most inadequate from a, a nutrient intake perspective. Yeah, I was just about to ask you what trends you saw in the particular nutrient deficiency there was, but you you read my mind and I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, um, it's interesting though, when you look at all of the research, I mean, there's definitely a correlation with vitamin D, calcium and fiber, but we also see, I mean, you can essentially find every single nutrient, like there's going to be a nutrient or a, a research study for just about every single nutrient proving that kids with autism don't get enough. So I would say across the board, it's definitely a huge concern. So that also leads me into the question of how is autism and diet? linked, but it seems like you're already beginning to answer that question. Yeah. And I would say that's one of the more obvious ways uh, to most people. I mean, kids with autism are selective eaters, which means they usually don't consume the right amount of nutrients. And so that's a kind of an obvious segue into that, but there are also so many other ways that nutrition uh, can really play into autism too. One of my favorite topics to talk about is gut health because um, there's this huge connection between the gut and the brain. And a lot of people refer to it as the gut brain axis or the gut brain connection. And uh, we see that in autism too, and a lot of other neurological conditions like Parkinson's, um, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, I mean, you name it, there are so many connections between the gut and the brain. And so I always like taking that extra step to look in the gut, what's going on there? Um, is it due to not consuming enough fiber in the diet, which is I mean, most kids, honestly, most kids in the U.S. are not getting enough fiber, but we also see in kids with autism, they consume very, very low fiber diets, oftentimes when they're selective eaters. And so this can affect their gut health and the bacteria that live in the gut or the yeast that live there and can really impact gut health. So it's so important to look there first, in my opinion, and see what's going on in the gut so that we can really help the body as a whole absorb nutrients and digest well and have regular bowel movements. I mean, there's so many things there that need to be uncovered. And then you look outside of the gut and you can see some research studies that show kids with autism have uh, an immune deficiency or abnormalities in their immune system. And I mean, so many other things, genetics can pull into it too. I mean, it just seems like the possibilities are endless. It's going to be different, a different combination for every person, but there's 
a lot going on there and diet can play a huge part of that. So if you're a parent who either notices or maybe suspects their kids has some type of a gut issue, how do you even start to begin? You said let's look at the gut, but how do you even begin to figure out that root cause issue? Mm-hmm. First, I would look at the diet. You can do a food journal for yourself, or if you have a dietitian on your team, they can help you analyze a food journal to make sure that you're getting enough fiber, getting the nutrients that you need, that it's not very concentrated with starch or sugars that might constipate or dairy sometimes can cause GI issues as well in many kids. What I will also do is use GI testing, like a comprehensive stool analysis, and you can look into the gut, see what kind of bacteria is there, yeast, parasites, digestive function, um, leaky gut, you name it, inflammation even. And so that really helps me get a good idea because many of the kids I work with are nonverbal. And so they can't really tell us if they're having GI issues or maybe some um, discomfort. And so being able to see those panels really gives us a good idea of what's going on in there and how can we help them um, in a very individualized way. So um, you can do that. There's food sensitivity testing out there that can also be done because food sensitivities can contribute to gut issues too, or uh, bloating and discomfort. So um, I like to use testing because I find that that helps me get to the root cause the quickest, but finding a provider who will do that kind of testing sometimes can be tricky. Oh yes. Oh yes. Finding a provider insurance, Mm -hmm. but let's, let's not go to that sad place. Um, (laughs) I, you brought up a term that is I would say is very popular over the last five years or so, but I'm not sure if everyone knows what it is. So I would love to talk to an expert as to what is leaky gut. Mm, so leaky gut, I think the first thing that I need to define is essentially the microbiome. So what the microbiome means is inside of your gut or in your mouth, you know, there's these different areas that will have different combinations of bacteria and yeast and other microorganisms that that make up that specific area. So our gut microbiome is very, very important. It's the, like I said, the combination of bacteria and yeast. Now, whenever that gets imbalanced or we have inflammation from foods or whatever it may be, then your gut lining starts to get inflamed. It starts to get damaged. And as it continues to get damaged and puffy, the, the spaces in between those gut cells can kind of open up. And whenever that starts to happen, I mean, we're talking microscopic. We're not talking these gaping holes in the gut. We're thinking um, under a microscope, what does this look like? And how can these little tiny particles from our food or from bacteria or gases, toxins, you name it, can actually pass through those tiny little openings in the gut? Now that's called leaky gut syndrome. It's something that can be treated, but you need to know what's causing it in order to treat it. Is it a food sensitivity? Is it an imbalance of the bacteria or yeast that's in the gut, like a yeast overgrowth? Um, So really addressing the inflammation and calming it and making it very strong and resilient is how you can handle it. Um, But many kids with autism do end up having leaky gut because they have all these underlying GI issues or food sensitivities that go unnoticed or untreated. So um, yeah, hopefully that explains it a little bit more. There's a lot yes. more to it than that, but that's that's a huge piece of it. Yeah. Um, thank you. And that is very helpful, I think, for parents to at least begin to start to look at 
what leaky gut is and what it can do and how it they could re- just ravage the whole body and in, in a way that you know you don't think about right away and i'm glad that you know research is developing and hopefully we'll learn more sooner rather than later yes. but you did mention stool a couple times and as a mom i never knew that i would care so much about poop <laughs> until i became a mom and it's very poop is very important and so with that <laughs> yep. in mind with that in mind I'd like to talk about poop for a little bit. Um, have you dealt with clients who regularly had bowel movements yet still were backed up? And what have you thought that could mean? Yeah. So I'll start with saying that kids with autism are eight times more likely to have GI issues than uh, their peers. And so the number one GI issue that we see is constipation. And uh, you know that can come down to many different reasons as to why they might be constipated. But yeah, I mean, I have definitely seen kids who are backed up, but can still have bowel movements and we get an x-ray in there and we see that they're impacted and that can really cause an issue for kids because our bowel movements are so important to our health. I mean, that's really how we detox and get out all of that food that we just consumed. Um, We detox through our stool, urine and sweat. And so that's a huge piece. And if we keep that stool inside of our body long-term, you're going to reabsorb a lot of those toxins. And that can be an issue, especially for maybe kids who have a hard time with detoxing. Oftentimes we see that in autism. So that I I definitely see that. In fact, I was actually speaking with uh, one of my clients yesterday who had gotten an x-ray back and we saw that they were moderately impacted, yet the parent had no idea. Um, He was still having more, some typical bowel movements. So it's very interesting to see that if you, you know, think that that may be an issue, you can definitely go in and get evaluated by a GI doctor. But um, I mean, GI issues can definitely go undetected. Hmm. What type of foods can help ensure regular bowel movements? You really want to focus on fiber. Fiber is definitely going to be one of the most important foods to form Uh, or most important nutrients to form healthy bowel movements. A balanced diet is also key. You want to make sure that you're consuming foods from all food groups. Um, But fiber is really something that I always want to focus on, especially soluble fiber, because what soluble fiber does in the gut is helps form essentially a gel, and it can help that bowel movement pass a little bit easier. So some foods that have soluble fiber include apples, um, oats, ground flaxseed can be ways that we can help gel up that bowel movement to help it pass a little bit easier. In fact, it can also be helpful for diarrhea too. So it's a really helpful nutrient to have there. If the kid is constipated, uh, water is also a very, very important drink to make sure that you have because your gut cells rely on water in order to pass that onto the bowel movement and make it easy to pass. So when we're dehydrated, that definitely becomes an issue. So fiber and water are two of the most important things uh, from a diet perspective. But I mean, you can also take into account probiotics like bacteria and putting healthy bacteria into the gut to help it help your gut digest and pass those bowel movements along healthfully. So you can consume foods that have probiotics in them, like our fermented foods. And you can also consume supplements like probiotics. Are some probiotics better than others? In other words, are all probiotics created equal? Absolutely not. They are all 
created differently. And what's really hard is that I think that there's a misunderstanding that it's a pro, you know, a probiotic is a probiotic, but that is not true at all. You know, it really comes down to the specific strain of the bacteria, the combination of strains, how much is in there. And I mean, the other ingredients in the probiotics, sometimes you'll find dairy products or gluten in these probiotics that many kids can't tolerate. And then it causes a bigger issue and, or the dose is just not even close to what the child could need. And what's unfortunate is a lot of people will try just one of the basic probiotics from, you know, your, your local store, and it's going to be a very low quality probiotic, have barely anything in there, maybe just one or two strains of bacteria. And they try it and say, oh, well, probiotic didn't work for my child. Well, that probiotic didn't work for your child. But in reality, they really could likely benefit from another probiotic that's a lot higher quality that has a higher number of strains of bacteria that has the right kind of strains and is fit for them. I mean, everybody's going to do well with different types of strains of bacteria, depending on what their gut looks like. So it's really important to choose high quality probiotics because that really is going to be a huge factor in if it works well or if it doesn't. Um, Generally speaking, how can you tell what is a high quality probiotic versus a Maybe not so high quality one. You're going to want to look for the higher quality brands and the ones that have some third-party testing on them. There are a few brands that I often trust. Um, Seeking Health is a good one. Clear Labs, Pure Encapsulation, some of the top uh, designs for health is another good one. But some of those really high quality brands that are also going to have the additional testing on them to make sure that they are the quality that they need. They have their your best interest in mind. They're looking for the specific strains that are going to benefit um, the gut, what the research says. And it's not necessarily just to put a probiotic out on the market to, to get some money on it. It's um, they're actually, you know, have your best interest in mind and are really looking to see, you know, make sure that the bacteria that they're saying is in there, that the lab shows that it's in there. I mean, what's unfortunate is that many supplements or all supplements, to be honest, aren't regulated by the FDA. And so um, unless you have some third-party testing, some supplements might not have in there what they say are in there. Um, There's been studies that show some will um, show up with sawdust or some really uh, just not what was claimed is in there. So it's really important to buy those high quality brands to make sure you're getting what they say you're getting and that it's the high quality that they claim it is. This is a good segue into multivitamins since you mentioned supplements overall. And yes, it is. I think a lot, sometimes people are surprised to know that they're not federally regulated by the FDA, the supplement category as a whole. So when it comes to multivitamins for kids living with autism, do you use that same approach in figuring out what works from a quality perspective for your child? Absolutely. And multivitamins are... So confusing to many people because you go to Target, and that's where you're looking for a multivitamin, which I wouldn't suggest. You're going to see this massive just shelf of tons of probiotics. And how do you choose which one is the best one? I would definitely recommend looking at one of those higher quality brands um, because all multivitamins, same as probiotics and any other supplement that you choose out there, are not going to be created equal. And 
So you want to make sure that the nutrients in that multivitamin are going to be able to be absorbed easily, um, especially your B vitamins. B vitamins are very important for kids with autism and they can come in a few different forms. There can be in a very inactive form, like hard to, to absorb. Your body has to go through a few additional steps to do that. And sometimes that process is called methylation. A lot of kids with autism have a hard time with methylation. So taking these inactive forms of B vitamins, they might not actually be getting them after all, or they, they may not be helpful for them. And this is the cheapest form of vitamin. So a lot of the vitamins that you'll find just on your shelf at your grocery store are going to be this very cheaply made multivitamin with these cheaply made B vitamins. Now, if you go for one of the the easier to absorb B vitamins, you're looking at what are called methylated or activated B complexes, B B vitamins. And these vitamins are a lot easier to absorb because they're already converted. They're already active. The body doesn't have to go through all of these different processes to absorb them. They're just in the form that the body needs. So the body already uses. And so it's important to look at that, but then you also have to look at what nutrients are in there. Are these vitamins, including all of these additional ingredients that are not necessary, like sugar or dyes and artificial flavorings, uh, that's not necessary. And then do do they have the right combination of nutrients? I mean, there's a lot of things to consider. And so this is why it can feel so overwhelming for a parent just trying to choose a multivitamin. And so I have a lot of resources on my website and on the autism nutrition library, which I can talk about later to help parents make an informed decision on choosing a solid multivitamin to fill in some of the gaps for their kiddos um, that's actually going to be helpful. Excellent. And we will definitely get there to your very rich library. Oh my goodness. Uh, but <laughs> before we before we go there, because we've discussed multivitamins, we've discussed probiotics, I wanted to get your take on over-the-counter stool softeners, because that's often prescribed when children have, you know, regularly or chronic, you know, chronic GI issues, um, which is the case with one of our kids. So I wanted to get your take on that. Um, So in our case, if you have a child who eats vegetables, yet still has these challenges, regularly having bowel movements, would you recommend over-the-counter stool softeners? So the problem oftentimes is that a lot of Uh, I won't pick on GI doctors too much, but um, a lot of GI professionals don't, I mean, the only recommendation that they will give if a child is constipated is a stool softener. There's no other solution. They don't often take diet into account. And so that often ends up being, well, here's your one choice is to use a stool softener. I've worked with kids who have been on Miralax for years and years and years and completely rely on it. Oftentimes what I think of in these medications as a band-aid and we're not really fixing the underlying issue. Now it can be helpful in a, in a time where you need it over you know a few days and you're really trying to get a child to have a bowel movement, but they're not intended to be used as a treatment. There's something else going under going on under the surface. And that's what we really need to work on identifying. So a lot of times, you know, we're just masking some of that. Essentially what a lot of stool softeners will do is just pull water into the GI tract to make it easier to pass. And so that can cause an issue with nutrient deficiency and um, losing out on nutrient absorption too. And so um, my thought is in trying to get 
to the underlying issue. And if we need to use some sort of stool softener in the meantime to help us get there, to help us manage until we can figure out the root cause, then, you know, that's okay. Um, But the goal in the end is to figure out what's actually going on under the surface to where we could discontinue a stool softener. And if you read on the back of them, they'll say, you know, not meant to be used over seven days, even Uh, I mean, you can, anyone can go look and I don't say this to be judgmental at all. I mean, like I'm saying they're helpful to use if needed in emergency, um, but shouldn't be used as a treatment long-term. So with that in mind, are there, are there foods, smoothies, et cetera, that parents should consider in lieu of these dual softeners that you've recommended in the past or? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it goes both ways, adding in things and taking out things as well. I think that there's a balance there and it's going to be different for every single person. So a lot of times dairy is a huge contributor to constipation. And so if the child's diet is heavily reliant on dairy, trying to find a way to transition to some more non-dairy options to see if that can make a difference. Some children are very sensitive to gluten or grains, which can be constipating. Um, so corn can be another one, soy. So there are many options there to you know, try and remove or replace to see if they can benefit your child. And then also adding in more soluble fiber, more fiber overall. Like I said, apples, oatmeal, ground flax, those are all ways to build in some more soluble fiber to make those movements easier to pass. There's also supplements that can be helpful in passing bowel movements like magnesium citrate is a good one that can help pass uh, bowel movements a little bit easier and relax the GI system and um, be more of a natural laxative. And that can be used long-term without issue. In fact, a lot of kids with autism have magnesium deficiency. And so that can be a good treatment there. There are many other options. It's just it definitely depends on the individual. And sometimes it's a combination of some of these strategies. Probiotics can also be a good addition as well. Excellent. Um, wanted to also let listeners know how they could reach you, find you, get to know more about your philosophy. You alluded to it earlier, but please feel free. You have the floor. Thank you. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at Autism Dietitian. I'm posting almost daily and post a lot of tips about autism nutrition for free. So that's a great place to start. And then if you're looking to deepen your understanding and education on nutrition for autism, you can also join the Autism Nutrition Library, which is essentially a monthly membership so that you can look up essentially any supplement, food, diet, symptom, condition, you name it. I mean, we're building it out every week. We release new notes every single week to help educate you and make you feel confident in nourishing your child and in the way that is best for them. So that's a really good place to go for trusted information written by registered dietitians and really evidence-based work and not just what the fads say online. So it can be a really great thing to have in your back pocket. And then I also have an online course called Biomedical Beginnings, which is more of a supported program to help walk you through each of the things you should be considering for autism, like gut issues, nutrient deficiencies, food sensitivities, environmental toxins, you name it. So it really just depends on the kind of support that you need, but we have something available for everybody. Well, high five to you, fellow autism sibling. I I think what you're doing is amazing. So keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. 
Britain's personal experience as an autism sibling helped propel her passion and expertise today. In our next episode, Autism Mompreneurs, I will be having frank discussions with two moms of children with special needs who are building livelihoods sparked from rich personal experiences linked to their children's conditions. For those of you looking to catch up on past episodes and get a little bit of background as to the genesis of this podcast, check out our website at notyourmamasautism.com and follow us on Instagram at notyourmamasautism. If you like what you are hearing, please leave a review on any major podcast players you may be listening to this episode on. See you soon. Not Your Mama's Autism Podcast is hosted and written by my mom, Lola Dada Ali, and it's also co-written and produced by me, Fella Ali. My dad, little sister Alero, and I are all occasional contributors. My dad, Tosin Ali, also helps produce sometimes. Big thanks to my aunt, Bolani Williams Ali, who did our graphic design. See you guys soon.